0: So, I'm going to read, and then we're going to go to Genesis 1. Uh, I'm going to do a lot of summarizing of passages, because we'd be here all day if I read everything. So, um, y'all just hang with me. But I'm about to show you something that you've probably never seen, and it's going to be really cool. So, here we go. I'm going to read some stuff I've been writing, and then we'll we'll just jump right in. The Old Testament temple, or tabernacle, maybe we should say. Uh, The Old Testament tabernacle was not just a place of worship. It was literally an overlapping place or unifying place between God's space and our space. This is all stuff I've taught, but just to kind of give you a little review. Uh, There was where God was enthroned between, we would say, maybe the dimensions between heaven and earth. So to be clear, it is not, just to remind you, it is not orthodox, original Christianity to believe that our world and God's world are a great material distance apart. Just so everybody's on the same playing field. That's not a Christian, original Christianity to not teach we're here, God's 10 billion miles out in space in heaven. So they are joined, our space, God's space, are joined or overlapping with the only difference or distinction being their function. Okay? So go back. If you missed the past couple of weeks, go back, and all this will make sense if you go back and listen to those messages. So God created the world in Genesis 1 to be a cosmic temple. And we're about to study this. A cosmic temple for He and humanity to rest together in forever. He didn't leave his space to create our space. He created us space within his space. Okay? So stick with me. He didn't leave his dwelling place, come create some random other place for us, and then go back to his dwelling place. He created a space for us to dwell within his dwelling place. You with me? Okay. So... The story of Genesis 1 is not the story of the material God created, though he also created the material. Rather, it is the story of how God functioned the material that he created. He does this through six days of God said, one on the seventh, or excuse me, on the seventh, he rests. So he, in Genesis 1, we see the story in six days There are functions that happen to this material in the earth, and they they are all triggered, if you will, by God said. Remember that. And then on the seventh day, he rests, Sabbath. The rest that it talks about is not like we typically see rest. We think of this, or rest, we think of rest, as God got tired, so he had to sit down for a minute, basically. That's how we kind of see God needing to rest. We think, God, man, God just spent six days just busting it, and whew, he needed to rest, right? That's not what this is talking about. Um, also, our view of rest in general is stopping work. You know what I mean? So if I say, hey, I'm going to take a day to rest, what I'm, really, I'm going to say, how you're going to translate that is, I'm not going to work for a day. You know what I mean? In other words, we think that God function all this stuff in six days and then said, whew, I'm tired, so you guys go do your thing. I'm getting out of here. It's kind of how we see typically in the West. We see the day seven creation story. Genesis was written to the Israelites traditionally in the wilderness by Moses. So traditionally, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Some people dispute this today. Either way, traditionally, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and he wrote this in the wilderness between when they leave Egypt and going into the Promised Land. With me? Awesome. If this is true, which I have no reason to doubt that it's true, that means that they would have just seen, the Israelites would have just seen, all ten plagues, water parting, a pillar of cloud and fire, among other amazing things like water pouring from a rock, manna appearing out of nowhere. They've seen all these amazing, miraculous things before receiving this book of Genesis. Okay? So they knew God existed. They knew that at that point. And they also knew that He was the only and creator God and therefore would have zero need to have an account that was strictly to prove that God created everything. With me? Okay, and this is nothing out of the ordinary, so y'all just hang with me, okay? This is brand new, but y'all just y'all stick with it. So the Israelites would have had no need for an entire two chapters to tell them God created everything. They knew that. They just saw Him part the Red Sea. What they did need as a nation that was about to marry God and be His covenant people is to understand why God functioned the cosmos like he did. They absolutely would have needed that. And that's what Genesis 1 and 2, that's where they come in. So after the fall, after the fall, creation could no longer be this wide open temple as it was in Genesis 1. And that's when the Lord calls them to build a physical temple, laced with imagery of Eden, I'm about to show you this, to point to a future hope that he would one day refunction the cosmos again. We call this new creation. Okay. So what I want to do today is I want to draw a line from creation to the tabernacle, and then from the tabernacle to Jesus and us, and show you how basically Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 are all one line. Okay? So we're going to go through the whole Bible today in a very, very, very fast way. <clears throat> and here's why. Here's why. I'm not doing this just for the fun of it. This is fun for me. This, but this isn't why we're doing this. I'm doing this to show you how much God actually has new creation on His mind. This is why we're doing this. Okay. Here we go. You ready? Notebooks out? All right. So Genesis, there are six said. And then there is day seven, Sabbath. You're about to see in Exodus, there are also six God says. And then, well, I'll save that for then. Okay. Don't want to get ahead of myself. So here we go. Genesis 1, Genesis 1, God functions the world for humans. That's what all of this is, is preparing for humans to live and reign and rest with God. All of this. Okay. So in day, I'm gonna just summarize this. I'm not gonna actually read through this stuff because we're we we got to we got somewhere we're going. So day one, this is Genesis one, three through five. God creates a He creates light. The other translation is a period of light, either way. He saw that it was good and he separated light from darkness, and there was day and there was night. So if you look at it from a functional terms or a purpose terms. Day one, God really creates time. Day, night, day, night, day, night, day, night. Okay? Day and night. You can't literally separate light and dark. You know that? it's, It's not like, it's just science, whatever. So literally, I can't take, here's light, and completely separate dark from it. The first issue is, is that dark has no existence. Dark doesn't exist. Dark is simply an absence of light. But even if we shut off all the lights in this room, closed all the doors off, shut off everything out in the hall, there would still be a presence of light, even if it's so small you can't see it. So what what God is doing here is rather than literally, as we typically see Genesis 1 as a material just straight up literally, Kind of account, what God is doing is he's separating the period of day and the period of night. Because remember, he's creating functions for humans. Okay? Okay. So that's day one. Day two, Genesis 1 6 through 8, God creates a space between the waters. King James, I think New King, King James also says this, but calls it a firmament. Such a weird word. In antiquity, In the Israelite days, they believed that the sky was actually solid. So they believed when you look up, you see a blue sky, there's a solid dome up in the sky, then they would have no reason to question that. Nobody had ever been out in space before. With me? So they believed it was a solid space. What God is creating in functionality right here on day two is he's creating A, space for people to live in, space between the waters, and then B... He's controlling precipitation that would later be needed for abundant growth. We might call this weather, okay? So in day one, he creates time. He separates day and night. Day two, he creates space between the water for man and God. And in creating space, he also creates precipitation control for what would come in crop growth, in uh, what you need to survive as far as water goes, et cetera. Okay, so that's day two. I'm blowing through these, and you'll see why in just a minute. So y'all just hang with me. Day three, Genesis one nine through thirteen, he creates land and vegetation. So now he creates a in a in a functionality type way. He creates a place for people to live, and vegetation for people and animals to eat. So he creates, let's say, food. Day one, day and night time. Day two, space and weather. Day three, land and food. You see, all all this is pointing to humans. You see this? All of this is needed for humans to live. Okay. Day four through six, God transitions from instead of creating functions, now he fills those functions with functionaries. So those who would govern those functions. So day four, Genesis 1, 14 through 19, he creates lights in the sky to separate day and night. You'll see how these start to connect with the other three days. Um, To mark seasons, days, and years. The sun and moon and stars governing the day and the night. What did he create on day one? Day and night. Day four, he creates that which would govern the day and the night. With us, all right. So he he moves from uh, he moves to who or what is going to do these functions. Day five, Genesis one twenty through twenty three. He creates sea creatures and birds. What did he do on day two? Space between the waters below and the waters above. Day five, he creates that which would govern the waters and that which would govern the sky. It's really cool. Day six, here we go. Genesis 1, 24 through 31, he creates animals and humans, that which would govern the land and vegetation. So this was the aim. Humans, it's all created, it's all functioned, and then here's what happens. Genesis 2, and I'm actually going to read this because this is where we're going. Genesis 2, is this too much so far? Y'all good? Okay, that's why I told y'all to bring a notebook. So Genesis 2, verse 1. By the seventh day, God finished his work or the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, or separated, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So when we read that, we think what I just said earlier, oh, well, God was tired, he took a rest, right? Sabbath rest in ancient Eastern literature that we have history of. In ancient, ancient Eastern literature, a God, a deity, was considered present within their particular false temples when they rested. So, in the Eastern mind receiving this, the Israelites, there is no hesitation when they read this that they would have been reading a temple text. No hesitation. And that day seven was the most important day in that culture A deity rests in a temple and only in a temple. That is what temples were built for. That is what a temple was. It was a place of divine rest. So this rest was when the normal operation of the cosmos could be undertaken. We see this idea in historical Sumerian literary pieces. We see this in Babylonian epics and more. We see this over and over and over. Now, these are all false gods that they're writing about, but we can get into the mind of an Eastern Israelite person reading this text and see this is what they're function or this is what they're processing when they're reading through this. They're not reading it and saying, um, and actually they wouldn't have even read it. This was written to be spoken out loud. They didn't have Bibles back then, so they're not hearing this saying, "Oh man, that's awesome." That's when God created the sky. You know what I mean? Or get to day seven and say, oh, man, that's great. Man, we should rest. This is pretty cool. He created rest on day seven. No, when they're re- they get to day seven and in their mind it hits them, God has been building a cosmic temple that on day seven he takes the controls of and says, now go. Amazing. You with, right? I mean, so cool. All these other um, Eastern writings I was talking about describes false gods, but the mind and thinking of the Eastern people was a temple was where God, Yahweh in this case, rested. So therefore, as we conclude, or we can conclude, as most scholars have, that Genesis 1 is ultimately telling the story of God setting up the cosmos as his temple that on day seven, he fills and makes his home in. And as he fills it, it is given the capacity to run as it should. God takes the helm. Now, everything I just read is probably not enough to convince you of this idea. Let's Be real. Thanks, Ellington. Just kidding. Was that you? Come on. No. So, all all of this, because you can take my word and be like, oh man, that sounds really great. But I'm not cool with that. If I'm going to introduce something that isn't new, this is all the early, this is, if you went back to, you know, the early church and they're sitting around a meeting, you said, hey, what do y'all think about Genesis 1? They tell you the same thing. This is all scholars teach this. This is all understood. However, we've never been taught this, right? And so, here's what I'm going to do I'm going to go to the book of Exodus and show you how the tabernacle directly corresponds with every single day and show you how it ends. Are you ready for this? Okay, here we go. So let's go to Exodus. We're going to go to Exodus, and we're going to start at 25, Exodus 25. Now, again, I'm not going to read most of this. I'm just going to kind of go through it. But if you want to go back and read it later, amazing. So at Exodus 25, God starts these, uh, what we call them, seven speeches. Exodus 25 starts, and there's seven speeches about the tabernacle and the priest, okay? It spans from Exodus 25 all the way to Exodus 31. And so I'm just going to, like I said, summarize this, and then we're going to read how, this, how these speeches end, and then we're going to preach. So Exodus 25, this is speech 1. All of these start with God said, the same phrase as in Genesis 1 when it said, and God said, okay? So Exodus 25, 25, verse 1, all the way to Exodus 30, verse 10 is the first speech, long speech. So here's what it says. Uh, Here, God commands them, they are to create, as verse 8 says in 25, a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. He talks about the ark, the table of bread of presence, the lampstand or menorah, which they consider to represent the tree of life, by the way, the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering, the courtyard, the oil for the lampstand, the priestly garments, the ephod, the breastplate, and priestly consecration. Finally, the altar of incense. So all of this stuff is in the, in the first speech. Here, Here, you ready for this? We can say that he gave them a definition to be unique or separated. He's going through all this stuff, not just so that he he can be specific. He's going through all this stuff so that he can bring them to a place where they are separated. Now, what happened on day one? A separation of light and dark. Okay. Okay. Speech 2 is Exodus 30, 11-6. This is where God separates in taxes. He separates those above the age 20 and below the age 20. And he talks about atonement money to provide for the upkeeping of the temple. What happened in day 2? A separation of upper skies... Or waters and lower waters. In the speech, speech two, he separates those above age 20 and below age 20, and he gives them the command of a tax to provide for upkeeping the temple. What does rain, weather day two, what does rain provide for crops? A means of upkeeping, of staying alive. So that's speech two. Speech three Exodus thirty seventeen through twenty one, he talks about a basin, a water basin, between the tent of meeting and the altar, which gathered or held the water for priests to wash. Day three, God gathers the water by land. Day three, God raises up land to provide barriers or gatherings for water speech three god gives them the command of a basin basin that would gather the water between the tent of meeting and the altar ready day four speech four excuse me exodus 30 22 through 33 is anointing oil this is my favorite one so y'all y'all check this out he gives them the command about what to do with anointing oil god tell now what happened on day four Stars, luminaries, uh, sun and moon, that which would govern the day and night. In speech for, God says to create anointing oil. He tells Abraham in Genesis that his descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Right? Also, David talks about, in Psalm 89, his seed being the faithful witness in the sky with the sun and the moon, Daniel talks about the righteous being as stars. Also, Paul in the New Testament talks about the same thing. So the anointing oil is used to anoint everything, primarily the priest and the righteous ones who are like stars. Speech four, day four. Speech five. Speech five. This is Exodus 30, 34 through 38. Incense is made by a particular set of ingredients and placed before where God would meet his people. One of those ingredients, and I'm going to butcher the name of this, but is onicha. It's one of the ingredients that's listed there in Exodus 30. And onicha is made by grinding a marine mollusk into powder. It was one of the main ingredients in this incense. Well, what happens on day five? God fills the seas with sea creatures. Here we go. Speech six. Exodus 31. Now, this is all stuff that scholars have taught for years, so I'm just kind of regurgitating some of this stuff, but y'all just hang with me. Exodus 31, one through 11. Bezeli. And Ohaliab, very interesting name. These two men are chosen as craftsmen or artisans. This is the first time in Scripture that it is said someone is filled with the Spirit. First time in Scripture. And here they are filled with the Spirit for the creative task of an artisan. These two men. Speech six. What happened on day six? Man. Now, check this out. In Proverbs 3, the same terminology about an artisan is used referring to God creating. When he tells man to be fruitful and multiply, what he's actually doing is he's giving them the command to be the artisans in his creation. And in speech 6, God raises up two men in assistance filled with Spirit for the creative task of being an artisan. Also, just real quick, when it talks about filled the Spirit, this is the first time that we see this language in Scripture, filled with the Spirit, this terminology. But when God raises up Adam... Now remember, Spirit, the other translation is wind, the other translation is breath. So when God raises up Adam on day 6... What does he do to bring Adam to life? Breathes. And Adam comes to life. Okay? So, y'all see these connections, right? And we're talking about the tabernacle. Let me read the speech that is in Exodus 30, 12 through 18, and then I'll stop teaching so much. This is the last one, the seventh speech. Check this out. Not going to believe this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between you and your generations, or you, me and you, for the generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Observe the Sabbath, because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it, Must be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days work is to be done, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath rest holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days God made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So, speech seven. So so you see how all this is connected, okay? So, why is this so important? I think maybe that's probably what you're asking, like, who cares? I mean, this is great, but like, that's great. Let me just, just throw in a couple of more things, and then I'm going to tell you why it all makes sense. Number one, in the Holy of Holies, in the Holy of Holies, there were the Ten Commandments, there was Aaron's budding rod, and then there was the uh, manna, okay? The Ten Commandments, Israelites or Jews referred to that as, as wisdom, The Ten Commandments, wisdom. Proverbs 3.18 says, Wisdom is a tree of life. So in the Holy of Holies, there was a representation of a tree of life. The Ten Commandments. Does anybody know, this is just a question, throw it out here. Does anybody know what was on, Matt, you know this, so don't scream this out. What was on the veil that separated the Holy of Holies and the rest of the tabernacle. Remember, what was in the Holy of Holies? The Ten Commandments called a tree of life. So what does anybody know what was on the veil leading into the Holy of Holies? What would you say? Did you say something? Oh, I thought you said something. Matt, you know. Let me say this. When Adam and Eve sin and they're kicked out of the garden, God sets something in place to guard the tree of life, right? So what are they? Seraphim. So he has seraphim blocking the tree of life. On the veil leading into the Holy of Holies, guess what we find? Seraphim. I mean, you, you see this? This, I mean, it's so cool, okay? So when the Israelites... Here we go. When the Israelites leave exile... This is getting into Ezra. This is where I'm going to start tying it all together. When the Israelites leave exile, they go to build the temple back of which is later described by the prophets later on in the, New, in the Old Testament as hopelessly corrupt. But later on, the prophets point back to this temple that Ezra and Nehemiah and the crew start rebuilding, and they call that temple hopelessly corrupt. We see this language in Malachi. when He said, I wish you wouldn't show up and do all this stuff because you robbed me. So, why is it calling it that? Why are they looking at this new, rebuilt temple and saying that thing was doomed to fail from the beginning? They're saying this because and I've just used Ezra for the past two weeks, and now I'm about to go back and kind of demolish Ezra. But that's okay. Not really. They didn't understand. They did a great job. They come out, and they're, they're given this command to rebuild a temple. What was the original tabernacle that I just read you about in Exodus? What was the purpose of that tabernacle? The purpose of that tabernacle was to be a signpost Not that God would dwell in a house forever. It was supposed to be a signpost that what he had on his mind was actually getting back to the cosmic temple he created. So all throughout the tabernacle were things that would have pointed back to the Garden of Eden. Every single place you turn. The materials that were used, the menorah, the seraphim on the um, on the veil, what was in the Holy of Holies, what was around the presence in the Holy, all this stuff would have pointed back to Eden. So the temple was supposed to be a signpost saying, where we're going is this spreading back out into the globe. Not... I'm taking what was in the globe and shoving it into a room forever. I'm only shoving it in a room to remind you that my goal is to get what's in the room back out into the globe. So when God is pointing at a new temple that needed to be rebuilt, He was not talking about a physical house. He was talking about new creation. So Ezra and the boys come back and they start rebuilding this temple. I say the boys because the boys are the ones that build the, the temple over there. But anyway, anyway, anyway. All right. That's a super inside thing, so that's okay. Um, they go back and start rebuilding this thing. And I've said this the past couple of weeks. Guess what? We never see the rest of the, New- the Old Testament. God filling that temple again. We see in Ezekiel, we see this vision of God leading the original temple that Solomon built. We never see language once the Ezra-Nehemiah temple is rebuilt of God refilling that temple. You know why? Because he wasn't going to refill that temple. He was going to refill the cosmos. How was he going to do it? John 1.14. This is the first time we see this, just to review, and then I'm going to jump ahead. John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and set up his tent among us. Okay? So they go and rebuild this temple, and then the presence of God comes back to fill. But it don't show up in the temple. It shows up in a manger. And the word was made flesh to tabernacle with us and among us. Why? Because Jesus came back to finish the job of the cosmos being brought back into its cosmic temple where God and man dwell and reign forever. This is nothing new. This is just your Bible. I'm just summarizing stuff, okay? It might sound new. It's not. 1 Corinthians 3.16, I've said this the past couple of weeks, Paul mentions us being the church, being the temple of God, where His Spirit dwells and rests, then you get to the end of Revelation. And I might read this towards the end. I'm not going to write now. You get the end of Revelation. John sees a vision of new creation. And then Revelation 22, Eden restored. So Genesis 1 and 2, you see Eden designed and functioned. Revelation 22, the last part of your Bible, you see Eden redesigned and refunctioned. So we're not going from here and then into infinity. We're going from here to Jesus and then right back around. And this is huge because if we're going to be a people, and why am I teaching this? I'm teaching this because we live in a day and age where all we want to do is keep going this way, refusing to look back at where Yahweh is actually taking us. This is why it is dangerous for us to teach that heaven's the end. Heaven's a great place. It ain't the end. John said, behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old one had passed away. Behold, there was a new one. New's not talking about brand new. It's talking about fresh. But either way, what we have done in the church is because it's easier and requires us to do nothing but be lazy... What we've done is we've said, well, brother, let's get to heaven. And what Yahweh's trying to say is, I'm actually trying to restore creation back to its original design. If you and I could partner together in doing so. Just what Jesus says. He says, destroy the temple in three days, I'll build it back up. How many of y'all know he's not talking about the physical temple? He's saying in three days... Hello, resurrection, I'm going to rebuild my temple. But it ain't going to be with bricks, it's going to be with bones and flesh. Somebody's phone's ringing, so you better answer that. All right, got a lot of phones going off today. Man, some, some weird stuff is going around here. Birds attacking people, everybody's phone's going off. <sighs> what are we doing? We are called to rebuild the temple called new or restored creation. Now, let me read Hebrews 4. This is actually what I'm going to read. Hebrews 4, y'all with me so far? Have I lost anybody? Okay, thanks. Thanks, Kyle. Let me, let me just read this. Hebrews 4, verse 1. I'm just going to read this out of Passion Translation because it's easier than this big Bible switching over. So, Now God has offered to us the same promise of entering into his realm of resting in confident faith. So we must be extremely careful to ensure that we all embrace the fullness of that promise and not fail to experience it. For we have heard the good news of deliverance just as they did, yet they didn't join their faith with the word. Instead, they heard, what they heard didn't affect them deeply, for they doubted. Talking about the Israelites. For those of us who believe, faith activates the promise and we experience the realm of confident rest. For he has said... I was grieved writ with them and made a solemn oath they will never enter the calming rest of my spirit. God works, or excuse me, God's works have all been completed from the foundation of the world. For it says in the scriptures, "On the seventh day, God rested from all his works." That word "rested," man, I'd love to rephrase that, but that's okay. Um, it's a good translation. It's just it's just a poor one. And again, verse five, as stated before. They will never enter into my calming place of rest. Those who first heard the good news of deliverance failed to enter into that realm of faith's rest because of their unbelieving hearts. Yet the fact remains that we still have the opportunity to enter into the faith rest life and experience the fullness of that promise. For God still has ordained a day for us to enter into called today. That's what I'm going to focus on. For it was long afterwards that God repeated in uh, it in David's words, if only today you would listen to his voice and do not harden your hearts. Now, if the promise of rest was fulfilled when Joshua brought the people into the land, God would have not spoken of a later rest yet to come. So we conclude that there is still... A full and complete rest waiting for believers to experience. As we enter into God's faith rest life, we cease from our own works just as God celebrates his finished works and rest in them. So then we must give our all and be eager to experience this faith rest life so that no one falls short by following the same pattern of doubt and unbelief. Last couple of verses. For we have the living Word of God, which is full of energy, like a two-mouthed sword. It will even penetrate to the very core of our being, where soul and spirit, bone and marrow meet. It interprets and reveals the true thoughts and secret motives of the heart. There is not one person who can hide their thoughts from God, for nothing that we do remains a secret. Hello. And nothing created is concealed, but everything is exposed and defenseless before His eyes, to whom we must render an account. Okay. What does Paul... Or, well... Possibly Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews. What are they talking about? I'm going to take a drink of this, then I'll tell you. He's talking about the Sabbath reality. I'm going to really mess with you. I don't believe, how do I phrase this? In in Genesis 2, I don't believe God was saying, here's day seven, and on this day, we're going to rest. Now, again, remember, rest is not chilling. Rest is trusting things are operating as they should be. Okay? For us, that might look like chilling, but you understand that difference. So, he didn't say, here's day seven, we're going to rest. I believe in the garden, life was rest. On day seven, that Yahweh established a new reality. God filled his cosmic temple, if you will took control of the helm and said, let's go, boom. And they lived in a reality of Sabbath rest. When sin entered the picture, now all of a sudden, the Sabbath rest lifestyle that comes from complete trust was now broken because of disobedience that entered the picture. Then they're given the command to observe one day as a Sabbath day Mostly because they were incapable of doing that for seven days. Okay? So on six days, you do whatever you got to do by the work of your hand. But on day seven, you're going to trust the work of my hand. That's what Sabbath is. In the garden, day one, two, three, four, five, six, seven and eternity was I'm going to trust the work of your hand and we're just going to walk in the cool of the day because remember what happens when they sin, God tells Adam, everything in your life is going to be about what you put your hands to. You're going to have to work and toil the ground and get whatever you need out of it, out of your work. That's why for six days, they got to work. And on seven days, they can rest. Well, before that, that wasn't the case. Before that, and I can't prove this, but you can't disprove it. I believe if Adam wanted an apple, he could say, I need an apple tree right here. And as he spoke, The frequency that left his mouth was the same frequency that left Yahweh's mouth because he's created in the image and likeness of Yahweh, and nothing was effort. Everything was effortless. Like I said, you can't disprove it. So we can just use our imagination, right? Effortless. After disobedience, everything is effort. If I don't work, I don't get it. And on day seven, you sit back and remember what was given up. That's what the Sabbath is. Day seven is remembering God is in control. I trust him enough to sit back and trust that I'm going to have enough for this day without working. But really what Sabbath is, is remembering what was given up before. It's a shadow of what once was. Sabbath day rest is a shadow of eternity. Not just eternity future, but eternity as in what was in the garden. You with me? So, what is Paul talking about? And I'm gonna just say, whoever wrote Hebrews, what are they talking about when it says, uh, for God has still ordained a day for us to enter into called today? As he's talking about the promise of rest. What is he saying? He's saying, on the other side of the cross, We've started making our way back to what it was like before disobedience ever entered the picture. How are we doing that? I taught this last week. How are we doing that? We're doing that by way of the first Adam and the sin of the first Adam being obliterated by the obedience and victory of the second Adam on the cross. What what separates us from the Garden of Eden? The bite of the fruit. Right? Right? They don't take a bite of the fruit they weren't supposed to eat. Guess what? We're all born in the Garden of Eden. I mean, somebody would have messed it up along the way. But let's just dream. Without the bite of that one piece of fruit, all of us come into existence in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden starts to spread across the cosmos until everything is exactly as it was designed to be. What does the second Adam do? He comes, he takes the bite of the fruit out of Adam's hand, puts it back on the tree, and says, now let's start this over again. That's what he does. If he obliterated the works of Adam, and obliterated the works of sin, and obliterated the power of sin, what are we left with? Victory. That's not popular, because it requires us to see ourselves as something other than sinners. And I'm way more comfortable seeing myself as a sinner than I'm comfortable seeing myself in the image and likeness of God. Way more comfortable. So because of that, we will build theology and ontologies and philosophies and all the other ologies. We'll build all of that off of you and I being completely messed up so much so to the point that every single day in devotion is more about us repenting than it is living in life. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Well, one problem, you're forgiven. I'm going to say we shouldn't ask for forgiveness, but if we're asking for forgiveness more than we're walking in life and victory, we've got issues. Well, you're saying we shouldn't pray for forgiveness? No, I'm saying we should live a life so free of a consciousness of sin that we don't have a clue. Woo, I feel this. Okay, see, I told you all the last half I was going to preach i you know i was I was having a conversation with a pastor this week, and we were talking about some of this stuff that he had never heard before, and I was like, you know I just what 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 hurts me as I'm writing through all this stuff is the thought that the more life that you find in the work of Jesus, the more people start to kick back against it. Let me give you an example. Last week I talked about that Jesus, said, Jesus came. When John sees Jesus, he says, there's the lamb who comes to take away the sin, singular, of the world. Now back when it was sins, easy. That's, that's easy for us to build theology on because that means you're going to constantly be sinning And he's going to constantly be forgiving, which is right, you know. But if it's sin, as I said, he came to do something way more than just give you an escape every time you mess up. He came to rewire humanity to the point where we look more like God than we do an invisible, not even existing Adam. Here's how I know this, is that if an unbeliever, an unbeliever, goes out and murders somebody tomorrow, are they going to feel great about it? Absolutely not. Why? They're not a believer. Why? Because something in them says, this isn't who I am. You see see what I'm saying? That doesn't mean they're saved yet. But this is what I'm talking about. See, we'll point out flaws in everybody, and we'll especially point out flaws in us. But that's all you got to know is my daughter hasn't sat through a theology class. And yet, she knows when she has done something that she shouldn't do, she knows this ain't who I am. She also knows because of the way that we've raised her that the first thing I can do when I do something I shouldn't do is not go hide. I'm going to run to mom and dad and tell them so that I can get back to who I am. So she doesn't fear what she has to tell us because we've raised her in a way, and we're not perfect, but we've raised her in a way that when she messes up, we don't say, don't do that. When she messes up, we say, this isn't who you are. So we've created a lifestyle back and forth, That when disobedience enters the picture, she doesn't question her identity. Instead, she takes the disobedience to mom and dad and says, here you go. That's repentance. Repentance is not, let me beat myself up for a few hours so I feel better about myself. Repentance is, this isn't who I am, so here you go, you need to take this. Jesus came so that he could be the one to take the weight of all sin. We teach this every Easter. He took the sin of past, present, and future. We teach that, yet we have no clue what we're talking about. If he took the sins of past, present, and future, every time you sin, that's your job to take that sin and hand it to the one that purchased it. It's his. It's not yours. It's his. So you take that in repentance and you say, this isn't who I am. Here you go, cross of Jesus, and then I'm going to keep living as who I really am, which is son and daughter. That's forgiveness. It's not forgiveness if you're still holding it after you ask for forgiveness. You haven't been forgiven. You see what I'm saying? If you got chains around you and you say, please unlock these chains, and then you leave that and you're still holding a bunch of chains, guess what? You never got got rid of your chains. Here's forgiveness. is if you're walking around with chains and he says, you know what? Those are mine unlocks them, takes them off of you, and then you run all free. That's forgiveness. Why am I talking about this? Because what Yahweh has us in right now is He has us in a reality and a lifestyle of Sabbath. What do I mean? He has us in a lifestyle and a reality of every inch and moment of everything that we do is aiming for in the beginning. All of it. And here's what that means. That means not only am I going to have to start, like I taught last week, seeing creation differently. I'm really going to have to start seeing me differently. Do I see myself as the Adam before the fruit? Or do I see myself as the Adam after the fruit? Because Adam was forgiven. If you keep reading through the New Testament, I mean like, God's people came from Adam. So I mean he he wasn't this big messed up dude after that. They kept living they just were in the garden. Kept living with God. They worshiped all that stuff. Noah came from him, the only righteous man on earth. You see what I'm saying? Um, so did Enoch. Enoch was so in the presence of the Lord that he didn't even die. He just was taken away one day. These all came from Adam. So they weren't jacked up people. They made one mistake. Are you with me? So do we see ourselves as a fake version of Adam? Because we don't really see Adam accurately. Do we see ourselves as a fake version of Adam that's messed up? Or a redeemed version of Adam who never took the bite? Because the only way we're going to get this cosmic temple back in order is for us to start on day six and work our way back. Uh, Man, y'all with me? I know I'm really deep right now. If if Sabbath rest was how this ended, and the writer of Hebrews says Sabbath rest is how we're now going to enter back into it, now we're going to start at Sabbath rest and transition all the way back to light and in the beginning. And if that's the case, the first place we got to go through is let us make man in our image. If man does not get his image back, day one through five mean nothing. And this is why I taught this. Because day one through five, as I just taught, the whole purpose of them being functioning like they were functioning was for man. That's it. Weather, food, light, none of that stuff means anything unless man is there to dwell in that stuff. Well, who cares if we got a big globe with a bunch of rain and, and fruit everywhere? It means absolutely nothing until man enters the picture and then all of it means everything. Man is the defining definition of creation. He creates man and now everything makes sense. Before man, what are we doing? Let us make man in our image, raises him up. Okay, now all this makes sense. If that's the case... It is illegal for us to start praying for new creation before we start becoming new creation in and of ourselves. If I'm not convinced of who I am after the cross, it does not matter how much I desire to see new creation spread across the globe because new creation, Romans 8 19 through 21, says this that all creation is standing on tiptoe waiting for what? God's sons and daughters to be manifested. New creation is waiting for you and I to become image and likeness of God again. But the way that we're going to get back to image and likeness of God again is through the lifestyle of rest. It's through knowing that God has everything under control, that God is operating things as he wants to, and that he has installed us to govern and reign with him. Is this too much? Yeah, it is. Okay. Sabbath reminds us God is in control. Sabbath life reminds us every moment God is in control and we are the priest in his temple. Now, something just fell in my Bible. That's okay. I feel the Lord just shifting us a little bit. <clears throat> let, me, um, let me read this. This is, this is Revelation 22, verse 1, and then we're going to wrap it up. Revelation 23, verse 1. Uh, this is John, last chapter of your Bible. He's writing this. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of life, flowing with water clear as crystal, continuously pouring from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The river was flowing in the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river was the tree of life. So so that now there's... Either multiple trees or the rivers flowing through the middle of this tree. So, uh, on either side of the river was the tree of life. And it's 12 kinds of ripe fruit according to each month of the year. So, remind you of Psalm 1. Trees planted by streams of living water bearing fruit in every season. Okay? The tree of life, 12 kinds of fruit for each month of the year, which is 12. So, bearing fruit in every season. The leaves... Of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. And um, the, other, the other translation of that is are given for service to nurture and care for the nations. This is the other translation. Verse 3, and every curse will be broken and no longer exist. Hello, for the Lamb of God and, the Lamb, uh, and of the Lamb will be there in the city. His loving servants will serve him. They will see constantly his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. See how like he's kind of undoing some of this, this, this creation story and taking it back to how it was. Night will be no more. There will never, they will never need the light of the sun or a lamp because the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign as kings forever. And then he goes through and talks about how this testimony is true, that whole thing. So this is how it ends. This, I just that's the end. The end, period, is over. We, we've been given something, and not just us, but, but there's not many that have been given insight into the heart of God for his creation. And the reason is, is because we, as a people, and I, let me say me, I want to speak for you. Hopefully you have too have given God an unlimited yes to change how we think. And in the process of changing how we think, not changing Scripture, of course, changing how we think to make sure we're thinking about Scripture correctly. You see the difference there? Because everything I just read you, I I mean, Lord, I would argue we read more verses and services than any other church in a year combined. But... The reason we read so much Scripture is I want us to be certain that this is what Yahweh is speaking to us, but what we have to submit to is a reprocessing of how we view this. What do I mean by that? I mean as He's making His tabernacle among us, as He's making us His temple and His dwelling place, as He's aiming for Eden restored, as He's aiming for new creation, we don't have to ask the question, Evil's getting bad, so when is the Lord coming back? We don't have to ask the question, when is the rapture going to take place? We don't have to ask the I mean, you can if you want to, but we don't have to ask the question of why things are getting so awful. What we do have to ask the question is, why are we doing absolutely nothing? That's the question we need to be asking. Like, why, why are we the ones in the creation given the first fruit and the first taste of new creation by our identity being rewired and doing absolutely nothing? In fact, doing the opposite of nothing, which is letting everything go to you know where while we sit back and look forward to the joy of heaven. Heaven's going to be amazing. I can't reiterate that enough. Heaven will be amazing. But after heaven... There is resurrection and new creation. We forgot. We don't talk about that because it doesn't sell tickets. But after heaven, there's a period at the end of the story which is preceded by resurrection and new creation. What we are called to do is aim at the new creation, resurrection piece of the story and let the heaven part of the story take care of itself. If you're a believer, you'll be in heaven when you die. Awesome. What are we going to do while we're still here, though? Do you see what I'm saying? If I'm just sitting back waiting to float away, which I don't believe anybody's floating away anyway, but if I'm just sitting back waiting to just float off into the sky so I can get my reward, guess what? This is your reward. He gave you and I creation. He gave you and I the call to reign and govern in his creation. This is our gift. And we're throwing away our gift because we're looking for something else. And he's saying if you would honor the gift I gave you, you would see what you're aiming at here in this gift. Seriously, we sit around and talk about... Why certain people get healed and some people don't, and I'm saying if we would aim for His kingdom come, His will be done, we'd never have to talk about that again, right? Amen. My, I'll amen myself. We're sitting, like the conversation. I've to talked to people about how, well, how are we going to deal with racism? We need to talk about how we're going to deal with racism. But if that conversation doesn't start and end with Your kingdom come, Your will be done, what we're doing means nothing. Right? I'm okay being awkward. That's okay. This is, this, but this is, this is what we're doing. We're doing this, we're doing new creation, and we're doing resurrection. Everything else will take care of itself, but that's what we're aiming at. He wasn't looking for a rebuilt temple. He was looking for a reformed cosmos. This is why Jesus came to the cross. Y'all are real quiet today. Y'all are real quiet. Who said amen? Amen. Thank you. This, listen, today's our anniversary, and I wanted to spend at my favorite place on planet Earth, which is here. But, but, I'm telling you, we're about to see the Lord shift a lot of things. We're already seeing this. We're about to see the Lord shift a lot of things, and if we, let me just, let me just help you out. If we don't understand this, what I've been talking about the past three weeks, if we don't understand this, we're going to completely miss out. On what the Lord is doing in today. We're going to completely miss it. I'm not giving you a prophecy that the Lord's about to. I'm telling you, the Lord is doing this right now. And you know this because creation is starting to spin and churn. Because sons and daughters are being manifested. Every single time you wake up and have the guts to look in the mirror and say, that person is perfect in the eyes of God. Every time you have the guts to do that, creation starts to swirl again. And then here's what'll happen here's what'll happen. The devil has been stripped of all authority. I read that last week. That's not a new thing or whatever. He's stripped of all authority. So if you swing a sword at the devil, he only got that sword because you gave it to him, he ain't got any more swords. Amen. Okay, Lord, you start you start messing with the devil and people get quiet. So, uh, because y'all so used to swinging swords at the devil, you think it's wrong. But um, we will start just like just beating up the devil, beating him up, beating him up. We've been watching Kung Fu Panda lately, so just you know, (laughs) we'll be beating up the devil. And while we're doing that, we'll taste a little bit of victory, and a little bit of new creation, and a little bit of new identity, and we'll start to walk free. And then all of a sudden. You'll hear the sword come back out. And you'll turn around and we'll get right back to it. Here's how this looks like you'll start seeing freedom, you'll start walking in it, and all of a sudden you'll see somebody post on Facebook about something that you don't agree with. And then what do you do? Right? You'll, you'll post, you'll post a, uh, a selfie. I don't think I've ever posted a selfie. I'll tell you that, I have to post a picture of me and my daughter. Um, but you'll post a selfie. You won't get enough likes. And what you'll go back and delete that picture. Right? Why? Why? Because in that moment, your worth was in how many people think that is a good picture. Now we don't think about this. We don't don't ever have a conversation about this. This is reality, though. So I'm not talking about this big spiritual warfare stuff. I'm talking about little stuff, little foxes that none of us ever even see as foxes. I'm talking about when you're living in freedom, and all of a sudden somebody will say something to you, I do this, that makes me chase 1,400 rabbit trails of things that do not exist, and then end up in the place where I'm questioning my calling, questioning my anointing, questioning my identity, and questioning everything else. Over something that does not exist. I do this. Not as much anymore. But still sometimes. I do this. And what Yahweh is calling us to the place. Is to be so secure in who we are. That nothing shakes us. And the only way we can get to that. Is to go straight through this. Here's the issue. When you go through this. One thing does not get on the other side of that. And that is any piece of the old Adam. When you walk through the cross, Adam cannot walk through that cross because of what Jesus did. So if you're going to walk through the cross, if you're going to die to self, if you're going to live as Christ and die as gain and that whole nine yards, I think you should do that. But if you're going to do that, you better do it right. Dying to self does not mean I'm going to go take a risk. I might include it. Dying to self means you start to see yourself as who you are. That's what dying to self means. That's what healing means. That, I mean this is a conversation we've been having because like when we first started this church, we used to do this which is awesome, it's totally obedient. We used to go out and pray for every single sick person we found. One problem, I start looking back and I say, "You know what? We ain't seen one of them saved." Right? Am I right? Mean we have this conversation all the time. That used to go um, this is I'm telling on me. I'm telling on me. That we used to go back and pray for people left and right. And we still do this, but we do it differently. But left and right for healing and healing and healing and healing and healing and healing. And And I look back and I'm like, you know what? None of them were born again. I didn't tell them about Jesus. I told them their back would be healed. Which is amazing as long as you make sure you don't leave that encounter without telling them about Jesus. Why? Because we have so shifted the aim from new creation, that we start aiming at abracadabra and anything else that will get people into heaven, that we forget we're actually called to bring heaven here. And that's not gonna start with somebody's arm going out, it's gonna start with somebody's world being rewired and then their arm going out. People are gonna be mad about that. That's fine. But you know what I'm saying? Like, we are, I'm aiming at his kingdom come. I'm aiming at his kingdom come. So here's what now. Walk down the street. Here's what it looks like. Hey, man, how you doing? Great. How are you doing? Awesome. Do you know that you are a son of the living God in his image? Uh, I've gone to church. No, no, no. I'm not talking about going to church. You know what I'm saying? Right? You leave those conversations, and then by the end of that conversation, if they got something, you better believe I'll pray for it. If they got diabetes, I'll pray all over it. Tell that thing to go. But when I leave that conversation... I'm not going to leave them with a regulated blood sugar level. I'm going to leave them with a new identity, which cultivates a regulated blood sugar level. I'm about to throw this pen. Do you see me? Do you see what I'm doing? But the churches I grew up in, the charismatic churches, all we cared about was the abracadabra and the flashy. If somebody threw their crutches down, and started sprinting around the room. We lost our ever-loving mind. One problem, half the people in the room were sleeping with the other half the people in the room that none of them were their spouse. Who cares... If everybody's leg is growing out and no one knows who they are. I'm saying this funny. That Some of that's reality. But y'all know what I'm saying. And this is where we're aiming. The Lord has allowed us to shift our aim slightly. We were aiming at sickness. We were aiming at getting words. We were aiming at all this other stuff. And he starts to shift us through a year of 2020 where all that stuff was laid down and says, If you'll just aim at me, I'll give you that as your inheritance. C.S. Lewis says, aim at heaven, and I would, I would maybe edit his a little bit. Aim at new creation, which includes heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. So I've been writing a book. It's done. I just got to figure out what to do with it now. But and when I wrote this. Let me say it like this. You, you aim at aim it, aim it doing something amazing abracadabra for somebody, getting a word. Aim at that for somebody, guess what? You'll probably get neither. But if you'll aim at Jesus, what you'll get at aiming at Jesus will make what you could have manufactured on your own look like nothing. Because I used to do it. I, in the Pentecost, I used to walk around and be like, man, I'm going to look like the biggest lost person if I don't get 12 words for these people. And so I'm walking up to people. This is my, my childhood. I'm walking up to people saying, hey, man, brother, you got, you got stomach pain? Nope. All right. Have a nice day. <laughs> you know what I'm mean? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Hey, man, like I, I, see, I, see you, uh, I see you limping. You got, you got knee problems? No. My shoe's on weird. Like, Oh, not, you know, just, just kidding. You know what I'm saying? Is that, you aim at that. That's, that's great. You want to aim at that? You can do that all day long, and you're going to be burned out. You're going to be burned out. You're going to start doing ministry that burns you out. You're going to sc- start creating families that don't have a clue who you are because you're spending so much time burning out trying to get results that you don't know who your family is. Instead, here's what I'm going to do. One thing I ask, and this shall I seek to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and gaze upon the beauty of your countenance. And as I do that, you know what I'm going to start doing? I'm going to start being like Peter. And when I'm walking to spend face to face communion with the Lord, my shadow, my effervescence is flowing off of my life and doing things I never could have done when I was striking people with my hand. This is what no eye has seen, no ear has heard. Listen, I believe in laying on of hands. What I believe in more is us being so secure in our identity that when we said God said, What's time, man? This, we're late." That's okay. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I don't know if y'all are feeling this. I just got to get this in you right now. I, I just because here's what you're going to leave here. and You're going to be like, "Man, I just you know, I don't know. I don't know about all that temple stuff. Forget the tabernacle stuff. That that was. If you don't believe that, that's great. That's not going to adjust your salvation. I gave you all that to talk about us. Okay. So if that was something that was just way above your head, whatever, throw it out. I'm just saying, focus in. What 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 we're aiming at now is Jesus. Not that we weren't before, but I'm t- 100% of my aim is Jesus. And here's what that means. If you come to me, cuz some of you have done this and you know, if you come to me and ask me questions and the answer doesn't end in aiming at Jesus, I'm probably going to tell you I don't know. And some of you in the room have gotten that this past couple of weeks. So, you know, well, how do we do this? What about this? What about this? I don't know. But I do know if you'll aim at Jesus, all those questions will take care of themselves. Here's what I used to do in another season is try to send people on rabbit trails and tell them I knew the answers to things that, guess what? I didn't really know. Th- this is the shift that's happening in us. Is when you get up in the secret place, you're not there with an agenda. God gets to set the agenda of his word, not us. So when you get in the secret place, you're not there for an agenda. You're there with one purpose, and that's more. You're there with one purpose, and that's his feet. One purpose, ultimately, which is to know his identity on a level you did not know it before so that you can live in your identity in a level that you did not live in before.